Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to do verses 1 through 10 in this audio. Our context is this. In the last part of chapter 1, Paul spent a lot of time trying to convince his readers that he did not receive his gospel through the Jerusalem apostles, the leaders in Jerusalem. He's trying to distinguish himself from them because he is teaching a lesson. He has a gospel that is not based on law, and he doesn't want people to think that he is somehow mixed up with Jerusalem where the law came from. And so he's trying to make a big distinction. But now in this section right here in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, he's going to show that the apostles in Jerusalem did accept him, even though he didn't receive his gospel from them, and they did accept him on the grounds of grace, not on the grounds of law. So that's where we are. We start with verse 1, Galatians 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. Now, first of all, we have a chronological problem that's going to cause a split of interpretation on what is this meeting in Jerusalem that Paul went to with Barnabas and Titus. Now, Paul had four trips to Jerusalem. His first trip was the post-conversion trip after three years and after his conversion. If we assume his conversion was in 33 AD, roughly, which is a legitimate date, three years after that would put the first trip to Jerusalem about 36 or so, or 36 or 37 AD. And then we know that the second trip to Jerusalem, which was to carry the poor relief from Antioch along with Barnabas, that happened about 47 A.D. or so. And then we know the Jerusalem Council was around 50, 51 A.D. Well, which one of these, and the fourth trip to Jerusalem, let me add, was the one that Paul went to after his third journey, which was about roughly 57 A.D. when he showed up in Jerusalem after the third journey and got arrested. So that's a rough time frame of his visits. Which visit that he is referring to here depends upon what after 14 years means. Does it mean 14 years after I was converted? If so, then that would put the date about 47 AD or so, which is the time of the poor relief offering from Antioch to Jerusalem, the first poor relief offering. So then Paul would be on a mission of mercy to Jerusalem. However, if you take the after 14 years to mean after the 14 years after his first trip to Jerusalem, well, if his first trip to Jerusalem was about 37 or so A.D., 14 years after that puts it about 51 A.D., which is about the time of the Jerusalem Council. So, depending upon how you take that 14 years, Paul is either on his second trip to Jerusalem to deliver money to the poor saints at Jerusalem, or he is in Jerusalem at A.D. 50-51 for the Jerusalem Council. Now, the majority view of this is that he was there for the Jerusalem Council. I'm just going to assume that for the sake of argument, but the the arguments are close. For one, one, the main argument that, in my opinion, that he was down there for the poor relief, he says, because he went down there by revelation. And then you read in Acts 11:27 through 30, he he says he went down there by revelation in Galatians 2:2, 2, our next verse. I went up according to a revelation, and then you read in Acts. 11, 27 through 30, which is the account of Paul and Barnabas going to Jerusalem with the poor relief offering, we see a revelation. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine through the Roman world. And dot, 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 dot. Then verse 30, they sent the poor relief by the elders, to the elders of Jerusalem by means of Barnabas and Saul. So you see, it was by revelation. So that's the argument for 
the 14 years being after Paul's conversion and the visit being the first visit. Now, the other argument that the 14 years comes after Paul's poor relief visit and the visit is being the visit to the Jerusalem council is the purpose of the meeting. Why did Paul go to the Jerusalem council? Well, it was because some brethren had come from Judea to teach the brothers you've got to be circumcised in order to be saved, and that, of course, is legalism to the max, is Judaizerism, and Paul's trying to stop that, and that's the whole theme of the gospel. And so that's why I tend to think it's rather Acts 15. Again, but I, I just mentioned that there's a big split of opinion on this. Here's what Adam Clark says, quote, There is a considerable difference among critics concerning the time specified in this verse. The apostle is, however, generally supposed to refer to the journey he took to Jerusalem about the question of circumcision mentioned in Acts 15, in other words, Jerusalem Council. So the majority opinion is that. Now, there's a weakness of that view is if Paul is going down here, if he went down to Jerusalem, he has that Jerusalem letter that says, hey, don't make the Gentiles be circumcised in order to get saved. And that's what his argument was. Why didn't he bring it up here in Galatians? It would have been the perfect time to do so. And so the argument, therefore, goes, therefore, he wasn't talking about his trip to the Jerusalem Council. He was talking about his poor relief trip several years earlier. Well, here's how Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown tries to answer that weakness. Here's one option. Well, the Jerusalem Council was a joint decision, and Paul's theme, as we know from chapter 1 in Galatians, he's trying to establish his authority independent of the other apostles, and if he immediately quotes the Jerusalem decree, he's going to be saying, see there, what I believe has been sanctioned by the other apostles, and that means that I need the approval of the Jerusalem apostles before I can do my ministry to the Gentiles, and Paul was not about to do that. After all, he's just spent all of chapter 1 talking of his apostolic independence, and to quote the Jerusalem council would show his dependence on that council. So that could be a good reason why he didn't mention it. Maybe he mentioned it as another option. He was not interested in numerical authority. How many people believe in salvation by grace, not through the law? But maybe he just wanted to appeal to the principle itself. He didn't want to pull rank by saying, see, I'm in a majority here. Jefferson Fawcett and Brown has another option as to why Paul did not mention the Jerusalem Council. It's because, so says those commentators, the Jerusalem Council decree was not strong enough for Paul's purposes. You remember that decree merely refused to impose Mosaic ordinances on the Gentiles. It said that keeping the law was not required for salvation. However, keeping the law was required for expediency and not making the Jews stumble. And so it was kind of a compromise. Well, we're not going to preach legalism that you got to preach the law to get saved, but we are going to say, Gentiles, you need not eat things strangled in blood. We're going to do a little bit of the Jewish stuff to keep Jews from getting grossed out by Gentile evangelists of the gospel. Well, that kind of fudged the issue a little bit. It was very important that they had to walk a fine line, and they did so, but Paul wasn't interested in walking a fine line here. He was interested in damning in no uncertain terms in bold, bright colors. He wanted to make a bright line to draw a bright line between the legalism of his opponents and the liberty of the gospel. So I think that makes sense. So I'm going to take the position that Acts, that Galatians 2.1, when he went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, was to go to the Jerusalem council. He took Titus along also. Now Titus, well, they took Barnabas and Titus. Barnabas we're more familiar with, and his name means the encourager, the one who encourages. His given name was Joseph. Barnabas was a nickname, really, the encourager. His name was really Joseph. He was a Levite from Cyprus. And, of course, he was Paul's companion on that famous first missionary journey, which started in Acts 13. Now, Titus was also a very important 
minister of the early church. He was a Gentile Christian. He served as Paul's delegate to Corinth. As we, we've just gone through First and Second Corinthians, we see that Paul sent Titus down there once to start collecting the poor relief, and then and, he, and maybe at a different time, maybe the same time, he sent him down there to make sure that the Corinthians would straighten up their mess, and then he came back to Paul and met him in Macedonia to say everything's cool, and then Paul says, okay, go back to Corinth and finish collecting up that, collecting the the second poor relief offering to Jerusalem, and I'll I'll catch you later. So yeah, Paul Titus had, had a lot to do with Paul's dealings with Corinth. Then after Corinth, Paul left Titus in Crete to oversee the churches in there. Titus 1.5, Paul writes to Titus, The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. So Titus was a fellow apostle with Paul the apostle. Now Titus is not mentioned by Luke in either Acts 11 or Acts 15 as attending the, the poor relief mission or the Jerusalem council. On either of our options here as to what this visit to Jerusalem was, Titus is not mentioned by Luke at all, so we have to so we don't really know for sure that Titus accompanied Paul and Barnabas to the Jerusalem Council. Maybe Luke did mention it because it was the church at Antioch that sent the delegation down to the Jerusalem Council. Well, Paul might have taken Titus on his own. He says, okay, the church at Antioch has sent me down there to Jerusalem. Titus, I want you to come along with us. It says in Acts 15, too, the church arranged for Paul and Barnabas to go to Jerusalem. But it also in Acts 15, too, says the church arranged for Paul and Barnabas and some others. And some of those others might have been Titus, including Titus. But who knows? He ends up going, I'm going to assume he went to the Jerusalem council. Now, what? here's some reasons that Paul may have taken Titus along. He might want to continue to disciple his convert. Again, what's the perfect time for discipling somebody? When you're on a mission trip, you're traveling. You've got lots of dead time between cities, so you talk about the gospel. He might have carried Titus so that Titus could be a living testimony of Paul's principles of faith, not works. This is according to John Gill. Why? Because Titus was uncircumcised. And Paul says, I don't care. I'm a Jew. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, but I'm carrying along an uncircumcised Gentile because he's saved by faith, not by works of the law. He might have carried Titus along to have a competent number of witnesses. Instead of just having Barnabas as a witness, he had Barnabas and Titus, two or three witnesses according to the law. Of course, Titus could have testified of Paul's doctrines, his miracles, his conversions among the Gentiles, and all that good stuff that Paul had done. Could be that Titus, when he saw what happened in Jerusalem, when he came back to Antioch with Paul, he could be a witness there. In other words, he was just a co- co-worker, a helper with Paul. That's a good reason why he went down there to Jerusalem. Paul always traveled in teams. That's a good idea for our tenant ministers today. When you're traveling as a missionary, carry some people along with you. That would be the smartest thing. I know sometimes it's not possible because of hard conditions out there, but if it's possible, it's better to do it. Galatians 2.2, Paul continues, I went up according to a revelation. It means I went up to Jerusalem according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders so that I might not be running or have run the race in vain. Now, this revelation, if it's if it's if the trip to Jerusalem was the first poor relief trip from Antioch, well then the revelation was from Agabus, as I've already pointed out. But assuming it was the the trip was to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council, we don't know when this revelation was. It's not mentioned anywhere else. And of course, it, I'm assuming the revelation was to Paul. He went up according to a revelation, a, a revelation. But the revelation could have been to the apostles at Jerusalem and say, "Come on down here." John Gill denies that, but it's an interesting idea. Could be a revelation given to the church at Antioch. Some prophet at Antioch says, hey, you need to go down to Jerusalem. Adam Clark suggests that. John Gill denies it. 
Or it could be, as the most simple way of reading it is, is that Paul had a private revelation. Jesus somehow revealed to Paul, I want you to go down to Jerusalem. It's a big deal down there, especially if it's the Jerusalem Council, which I believe it was. Now, why did, what are some of the human reasons, the natural reasons that Paul went to Jerusalem to present them the gospel he preached, i.e. the gospel that is salvation by grace through faith and not by the works of the law? Why did Paul go down there to tell the Jerusalem apostles that? Well, here's some options. Option one, to make sure that his, Paul's, gospel matched the gospel that was being preached in Jerusalem. Well, that makes sense. We don't want people down there in Jerusalem preaching legalism, do we? He might have gone down there to give instructions to the apostles. Ooh, you gonna give inst- Paul's going to give instructions to the pillar apostles in Jerusalem? Probably not. He might have gone down there to receive instructions. I don't think so. Paul is making a big deal about how his gospel is independent of these Jerusalem apostles, so I don't think that's it. Although John Gill says it is so, I don't think he would do that. In my opinion, the reason he went down there was because he was going to the Jerusalem Council to deal with the issue of how do we present the gospel to the Gentiles? Do we tell them they have to be circumcised and follow the law in order to get saved? Oh, no. So that was the real reason, I think. Now, if Paul is going to the Jerusalem Council, this verse says that he met with the apostles in Jerusalem privately before the council. Why would Paul do that? Well, John Gill suggests this. Paul knew the Jerusalem church could not digest salvation by grace and not by works. That was too much for their legalistic little souls because, you know, they're Jews. It was a hard transition for them. The Jerusalem church as a whole couldn't handle that. But now the leaders had enough revelation. I mean, after all, Paul had that famous Excuse me, Peter had that famous revelation at Yapa about the dirty animals coming down on the sheet. What God has declared clean, let no man declare unclean. Then he goes and preaches to the Gentiles at Cornelius' house. And then he comes back in Acts 11 and tells the Jewish leaders there exactly what happened. So then now the leaders of the Jerusalem church know that salvation is by grace through faith, not by works. So here's the speculation. Peter went to the leaders knowing that they would agree with him on the freedom and liberty of the gospel, whereas the Jerusalem church as a whole might not. So he goes privately. And as he goes to these leaders, they might have discussed what they're going to present later to the public Jerusalem council, where if you read Acts 15, you will see there's a lot of people there besides the Jerusalem apostles and the delegates from Antioch. They had the elders of the church were there. I think some other brothers, too, if I remember correctly, but it wasn't just the leaders. So that makes sense. Now, notice that Paul says that the leaders in the Jerusalem church were recognized as leaders. And, of course, all leadership has to be based upon fellowship. The the ones who are following the leaders have got to recognize the leaders, or else the leadership is kaputsky. Reminds me, I just read this morning, President of Brazil tried to open up some airports and open up the economy of Brazil, which had been shut down because of the coronavirus, and the Provincial governor says, uh-uh, we're not doing it. And so his leadership is pretty much smashed now because they didn't follow the leader, even though he was the president and they were just a little tiny governors. So they were recognized as leaders by the people there. Now, Paul recognized, Paul, even though he Paul recognized Peter, James, and John as leaders of the church, that did not mean, that does not mean that Paul thought that they had greater authority than he did. Paul's going to make that very clear. They didn't give him anything, the Jerusalem apostles. He, Paul has authority as an apostle, too. This is a big political deal here in the beginning of the church. Now, he recognized that the people's recognition of the leaders was just and right. He rec- in other words, Paul recognized those leaders as the Jerusalem church's leaders, but not as his leaders. He recognized the proper spheres of authority. 
He never built on another man's foundation, as he says, in another place. But on the other hand, he didn't let other people build on his foundation either. The leaders are not mentioned. I'm assuming that it's Peter, James, and John, as we'll see in verse 9 when we get there. Now, Paul says he went down to Jerusalem so that he would not have been running in his ministry, running a race, which is what he calls his his gospel ministry, so that I might not be running or have run the race in vain or for nothing. Why would he say that? Well, here's some options. Paul might have been concerned that his gospel was not proper and right. And so he's thinking, oh, I might have just done everything wrong. And so all my gospel ministry is worthless, is foolishness, is in vain, is for nothing. I got to go down to Jerusalem and let them tell me that what I'm doing is right. Well, we know that's not so. He does, he's not looking for affirmation from the Jerusalem leaders. Paul had just spent a lot of time justifying his gospel as independent, as we saw in the last chapter. So that's not it. Maybe Paul went down there because he was concerned about what other Christians would think of his ministry. In other words, he didn't really want them to affirm what he was. He didn't, he didn't need them to tell him that what he was doing was right, but he needed the Jerusalem leaders to tell other people that what he's doing is right so that people would respect him and, and accept his teaching. This John Gill, Adam Clark, and James from Fawcett and Brown all three agree with this idea that Paul is just concerned about getting public approval for his ministry, not doctrinal approval, but public approval. So otherwise, people would oppose him and all of his teaching would be in vain. He would no longer have any usefulness in preaching the gospel. So let me f- summarize the first two options as to why Paul was worried about his running being in vain. Option number one is that Paul was looking for doctrinal approval to make sure that he wasn't preaching a false gospel which might fall to the ground. Of course, that's not true. Option number two is Paul was looking for personal approval, not doctrinal approval, but for personal approval. In other words, that leaders in the church would say, yes, Paul, you're preaching a good gospel. And that, the answer is, probably yes. Another option is that Paul didn't want it said that circumcision was required for salvation because that would ruin the conversion experience of all his converts. And that would mean he had run his race in vain. If you're, if you're going to say that all of Paul's converts were now no longer saved because they hadn't gotten circumcised, well, then he would have run his race in vain. That could be, too. We go down to verse 3 of chapter 2 in Galatians. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Now, here is Paul's exhibit A in trying to prove that you don't need to be circumcised to get saved it's because Titus was not circumcised. Even though he was a Greek, and of course, remember these Judaizers are saying that Greeks have got to be circumcised and get, got to be saved. That's why Paul says, though he was a Greek. He's not compelled to be circumcised. Now, Paul could have been referring to himself. Paul didn't make him get circumcised, or he could be saying that the Jerusalem elders, when he got down there, they didn't, they didn't require Titus to get circumcised. Now, if that's the case, then this would show how completely in accord the elders in Jerusalem and Paul were. Because, as we know, the elders in Jerusalem all believed in salvation by grace through faith alone, apart from works, as we see from the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And also their acceptance of Peter when he came back from Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 11 and, and reported to the Jewish leaders there. Now, when Paul says not even Titus was circumcised, that allows for the fact that a good case could be made that Titus should be circumcised as a matter of expediency. Now, Paul would circumcise if it meant becoming weak for the sake of the gospel. The weak, he became as weak, as you recall. Now, here's the case for Titus. They were surrounded by, for Titus being circumcised. Paul and Titus were surrounded by hostile Judaizers in Jerusalem. They could have wrecked Paul's ministry in Judea, as Adam Clark points out. 
Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out, well, in a similar case, Timothy was circumcised as a matter of expediency. Now, Timothy, now we need to make the distinction between why Timothy was required to be circumcised. In Acts 16.3, Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was a Greek. So in Acts 16.3, we see that Paul had Timothy circumcised when he took Timothy with him, but when Paul took Titus with him down to, to the Jerusalem council, Titus was not circumcised. So what's the difference? Jameson Fawcett Brown explains the difference this way. If Paul had circumcised Titus, that would have established a bad principle. It would have established the fact that it was necessary to, for Gentiles to get saved by keeping the law. Now, there was no other reason to circumcise them except for this. Because the Jews expected Gentiles to be uncircumcised. So if Paul went down there and circumcised Titus, the Jews would say, well, it must be, or the Judaizers, the people in the church, would say, see there, it must be necessary to get circumcised to get saved. Paul just circumcised a Gentile. But if Paul didn't circumcise the Gentile Titus, the Judaizers would just think, well, so what? Gentiles are never circumcised, so it's no big deal. So it wasn't necessary to exercise Titus to keep the Jews happy, so Paul says, well, I didn't exercise, I didn't. I didn't uh, circumcise him, but Timothy was not a Gentile. Let's read here in Acts 16.1. Then he, Paul, went on to Derby and Lystra, where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman. But his father was a Greek, so he was half Jewish. And now the Jews did expect those types to get somebody that's half Jewish. He was supposed to get circumcised. And if Paul hadn't circumcised Timothy, there would have been hell to pay from the Jews. He had enough trouble with the Jews already on his trip. So as a matter of expediency... And that word has a negative connotation, but it doesn't need to be negative. As a matter of practical expediency, Paul circumcised Timothy, not to get Timothy saved, but just to keep the Jews off of the apostles' backs. That was not necessary with Titus because Titus was a Gentile. I'm sure if Titus was Jewish, they was Jewish, they probably would have circumcised him just to save the hassle. But Titus was not Jewish; he didn't need to get circumcised. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9:22, "To the weak I became weak." In other words, to those who think that I got that Timothy needs to be circumcised, I made him circumcised in order to win the weak, in order to win the Jews. I become all things to all people, so that I may by every possible means save some. He's not going to cause people to stumble over something like circumcision, and that's what the Jerusalem Council was all about. Let's don't make the Jews stumble. We're not going to require keeping the law for salvation, but on the other hand, we're not going to put up hindrances to the gospel. Now, when Paul says, "Not even Titus, who was with me, was circumcised." I've said earlier that the even might mean that even despite all the hostile Jews around me screaming circumcised, 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 I still didn't do it. Yeah, it could be that. Or it could be that even the big shot Jerusalem Jewish elders didn't require Titus to be circumcised. So that shows that even more so that salvation is circumcision is not necessary for salvation because even more so the Jerusalem apostles didn't require it. We go to verse 4, Galatians 2. This issue arose because a false brother smuggled in, Paul continues, who come in, who came in secretly to spy on the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ in order to enslave us. And there's the key rub right there. Legalism is slavery, folks. Slavery. It's not just an academic theological discussion. It will affect your very freedom and your very life. Now, these were false brothers. John Gill assumes that they were not saved. They had the name, but not the grace, which entitles to the character of brethren. They called themselves Christians, but were in reality Jews. Well, okay, but perhaps, this is my opinion, they could have been people who had screwed up beliefs. They might have been sincere Christians who were just wrong in their heads, in their doctrine. I'm going to cite Acts 15.5 to 
to back that view up, but some of the believers from the party of the Pharisees, some of the believers from the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So there you've got believers who are advocating circumcision for salvation, so that shows that believers could be Judaizers. So I don't know whether these brothers... These false brothers were believers or not, but they were certainly a problem. They were probably non-believers. I think that Clark is probably right here. Gill's probably right. But there is a possibility that some of them might have been believers. At any rate, they didn't act like they weren't exhibiting regenerate behavior. They came in secretly to spy. This this shows that this was no mere friendly, unbiased theological discussion. These people were trying to worm their way in and to win by underhanded methods. And so Paul had no choice but to blast them and to fight them at all costs. I mean, I know of a church that had a guy, a hyperpreterous heretic, who came in and didn't tell anybody about his heretical beliefs for 10 years, a sleeper cell in a church. And finally, it was discovered that he was having secret meetings telling everybody that there is no resurrection of the dead without telling anybody in the church, without telling the leadership of the church. 10 years, sleeper cell. So... that's just one example that I know from my personal experience. I'm sure that it happens a lot that there are false brethren who are smuggled into churches. I know of Eastern Oriental Lightning cult in China that's done the same thing. They walk into the meetings. Oh, would you like to have a Bible study? You don't, I know that nobody knows the Bible around here because we have a lot of young Christians. So let's go out and have a seminar out in the, out in a farmhouse. And next thing you know, they, they, they tie them up, drug them, pour alcohol over the heads get women uh, half-dressed and take pictures of them and send the pictures back home to the brother's wives to blackmail them, that kind of thing, smuggled in. They don't. They come in and smile. Oh, we love Jesus. We have, we're going to teach you the Bible. But at any rate, those people are dangerous, really. That's why you have shepherds in a flock to watch out for that kind of stuff. Now, where were these false brothers smuggled into which church? I mean, you could say it was the Galatian churches, but Paul doesn't really say which church he's writing to probably referring to Antioch. We go to Acts 15.1. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. That, of course, was the occasion of the Jerusalem Council. And again, this is iffy as to whether this is the Jerusalem Council, but we can assume that. So I think that's where Paul is talking about the smuggling in of the false brothers was at his church in Antioch. Acts 15.24, it was said that because we have heard that some without our authorization, this is the Jerusalem elder speaking, some without our authorization went out from us, went out from the Jerusalem church and troubled you, you people in Antioch, with their words and unsettled your hearts. So that's probably what Paul was talking about. This, of course, the spying that was done by these false brothers, they probably sat in with the apostles or with the church at Antioch and they heard what Paul was preaching and then so they took pains to counter what Paul was saying, and this is probably why Paul met with the Jerusalem apostles first privately to get away from these people so they couldn't hear what he was saying. As Jameson Fawcett and Brown put it, these false brothers were foes in the guise of friends. Galatians 2 verse 5, but we did not give up and submit to these people for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. The people he's talking about are the false brethren. The gospel would be preserved for you. That could be for the Gentiles in general, and probably more and more particularly the Galatian churches in general, the majority of whom were probably Gentile. Not for one hour. Paul knew how to stand for the truth when necessary. He did it. All through his gospels. Compare that today to the evangelifish preachers you see out there. 
the prop preachers with their fancy cars and their blue jeans with the holes in the knees, their peg leg jeans that are tight around their ankles and their hair skinned on the sides and long on the top, trying to be so relevant. But they're not going to mention, not too often anyway, the fact that their audience are sinners because after all, we're trying to win people. We're not trying to scare them off. That is not the way Paul operated, folks. Galatians 2, 6. Now, from those recognized as important, what they really were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to me. Now, those he's talking about, the, the leaders of the Jerusalem church, will assume it's Peter, James, and John. Paul seems to say something here's a little bit rude. What they really were makes no difference to me. God doesn't show favoritism. He's not in favor of those three apostles as opposed to this apostle, Paul. They didn't add anything to me. They didn't give anything to me. Now, it does. It does sound a little cocky, but Paul's going to smooth it out here in just a minute. But his point is, is I got the gospel separately by revelation from Jesus Christ. And so my apostleship is every bit as important as theirs, and therefore I have the right to denounce this stinking legalism that's messing up the churches in Galatia. God does not show favoritism. The NIV has God does not judge by external appearance. Let's look at some different translations. The Mace New Testament. God accepts not the person of any man. Montgomery New Testament. God is no respecter of persons. The New American Bible. God shows no partiality. And so the NASB says the same thing. God shows no partiality. Well, partiality is a bad thing. Impartiality is a good thing in general in the scriptures, actually. Let's look at Deuteronomy 10:17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. Now, in the Old Testament law, there are several provisions. I don't have them with me in front of me, but there were several provisions that guaranteed partiality. You're not weren't supposed to show partiality to the rich, nor were you supposed to show partiality to the poor. It mentions both. So economic status should not have anything to do with whether a crime was committed or not committed. Luke 20, verse 21, they questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know you speak and teach correctly, that's the Pharisees, and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. In other words, he's not biased toward the Sadducees, he's not biased towards the Pharisees, he's just trying to teach the way of God in truth. Well, the Pharisees recognized the truth, did they not? James 2, 1, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And there, James is talking about economic favoritism because of the rich favoring the rich over the poor. Ephesians 6, 9, And masters do the same things to them, to the slave, to your slaves, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with them. In other words, God is going to judge whether something's right, not based on whether you're the master or you're the slave. It's whether the slave or the master did right or did wrong. And I'm going to tell you something. Partiality is a, impartiality is a hard ideal to reach. That's why there's so much jury selection and Get the venari in there and ask them all kind of questions. Well, are you biased against this? Are you biased against that? It's it's hard to be impartial. And the legal system goes to great lengths to try to make it so. But at any rate, Paul says, listen, if I'm doing the work of the gospel and James and Peter and John are doing the work of the gospel, why should God favor one apostle over another? These apostles added nothing to me. I got all my gospel, not from them. And he's not trying to be braggadocious. He's just stating a fact. He had it by revelation on the road to Damascus. John Gill says that the reason Paul sounds like he's being a little anti-Peter, James, and John is because the Judaizers were probably heaping praise on these Jerusalem leaders because they're from Jerusalem where the law was given. And Paul is trying to say, hey, uh-uh, I don't, that's, that doesn't mean a thing to me. 
Now, John Gill's got a very interesting point here. Isn't it, isn't it ironic that Paul is saying that he wasn't impressed by the high status of the Jerusalem elders when the Jerusalem elders were former fishermen, unlettered fishermen? Paul, on the other hand, was a scholar who learned at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a super scholar, more advanced in Judaism than any of his brother rabbis. And so here's this ex-rabbi saying, I'm not impressed by the high status of these Jerusalem elders, these former fishermen. It's kind of ironic. Paul was probably not looking at economic status here. He was looking at spiritual status, if you will. I mean, Paul was a former persecutor of the church and the Jerusalem elders. I mean, one of them traveled with Jesus, Peter. Well, and so did John, for that matter. Peter and John traveled, and James was Jesus' half-brother. So they had high status, religiously speaking, not economically speaking. But it is kind of ironic, is it not? Because economic status and academic status doesn't mean a toot when it comes to spiritual things. Now, Paul says these Jerusalem leaders, Peter, James, and John, added nothing to me. They didn't correct, and not only did they not add anything, they didn't correct Paul on anything, not one single thing. They didn't chastise Paul for having brought the uncircumcised Titus down to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, Paul had added something to them, as we go and read in the next verse, in verse 7. He's, he's the one by saying that I've been entrusted to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles don't have to have the law to get saved. He was kind of teaching them a little bit. We go to verses 7 and 8 of Galatians 2, but on the contrary, seeing that I've been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, in other words, they didn't add anything to me, but on the contrary, I'm adding something to them. Seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. Long parenthesis there. Now when Paul says he is a he had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that did not mean that Paul went exclusively to the Gentiles, because we in fact know that he on his trips, went first to Jewish synagogues. That was his normal practice. They usually kicked him out, and then he went to the Gentiles. Here's one example, Acts 13, 14, on the first journey. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So you see, he, Paul went to Jewish places too. But he considered himself mainly an apostle to the Gentiles, as he writes to the Romans in Romans 11:13. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. So Paul called himself the apostle to the Gentiles. And just as Paul did not exclusively go to Gentiles, Peter didn't exclusively go to Jews either. Now, remember, in verses 7 and 8, Paul says, I went to the uncircumcised, and Peter has gone to the circumcised. That's a general statement. He doesn't mean without exception. He just means generally. Because Peter went to Gentiles. You remember the famous case at Cornelius' house in Acts 10, of course, the famous case where Peter went to the Gentiles after he had the vision of the dirty animals let down in the, from the heaven when he was sleeping at Joppa. Joppa. Now, let's talk about how the gospel worked. How about how did the gospel work for Peter? John Gill gives these examples. Peter cured the man lame from birth in Acts 3. He struck Ananias and Sapphira dead for telling lies in Acts 5. He raised Dorcas from the dead in Acts 9. Gill says he communicated miraculous gifts by the imposition of his hands, and I don't know where Gill gets that from. I don't have his sight. I'm not sure when Peter did that, if he did do it, if Gill's right about that. Peter preached to and converted thousands of souls, even in one sermon in Acts 2, Peter's famous Pentecostal sermon. So yeah, Peter was quite powerful in the working of the gospel, and Peter gave, Paul gave him credit for that. He's not trying to say, I'm a big-shot apostle, I don't recognize what the other apostles did. So he's very careful to 
temper his declaration of independence in verse 6, they didn't add anything to me, with recognition of their work in the gospel in verses 7 and 8. How about, how did the gospel work effectively for Paul? Here's some examples from John Gill. Paul's zeal, his constancy, his intrepidity of mind. He worked many miracles. For example, he healed the cripple at Lystra in Acts 13, 8 through 10. He raised Eutychus from the dead, the guy that fell out of the window at Troas. Acts 20, verse 9, he struck blind Elamus the sorcerer. That was on the first journey on the island of Cyprus. Paphos, I think the city was. I can't remember. But at any rate, and he converted gobs of people and started lots of churches, as we know, by reading the book of Acts and his letters. So Paul, of course, had a quite a effectual ministry. And so Paul is trying to say, look, God's working through me. Now, of course, I mentioned some of this stuff that Paul did. A lot of it hadn't been done yet because we're now at the Jerusalem Council, which is only after the first journey. But nonetheless, Paul had an effective ministry at the first journey. He was later to have a great effectual ministry in the second and third journey and after the third journey. But anyway, already he got the gospel had effectually been working with Paul. And Paul's saying, I'm working. Peter's working. God's working with both of us. So let's don't try to put the Jerusalem elders over me, Judaizers. We go now to verses 9 and 10, Galatians 2. We'll finish up this audio. And recognizing the grace that has been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Notice that reputed to be pillars. Sounds like it seemed that they were pillars. They weren't, you know, they didn't have an office with a big name tag in gold on there and says, I'm the Pope. I'm Pope Peter. And this is Cardinal James and Cardinal. No, they were there by reputation. So James and Cephas, that's Peter. Cephas is the Aramaic word for Peter. Some people say Aramaic. Some people say Syriac. And I just looked up that Aramaic and Syriac are related languages, but they're not the same. They're not mutually in- intelligible and have different scripts. I didn't realize that until this morning. So they're a little bit different. So, But at any rate, Cephas refers to Peter. Sometimes the sources will say Cephas is the Syriac name. Sometimes they'll say it's the Aramaic name. So apparently there's, there's some confusion about those two languages. And recognizing the grace that's given to me, James and Cephas and John, James and Peter and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, which shows that they agreed with Paul's ministry of salvation by grace through faith and not on the basis of law. Why was the right hand of fellowship given to Paul and Barnabas? So that we, Barnabas and Paul, might go to the Gentiles and they, Peter, James, and John, to the circumcised. So they had a division of ministry, a little strategic meeting here, little turf definition. Verse 10, they only ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also was eager to do. Now, Paul showed he was eager to do because, to do that because roughly seven years later, when he came back at the end of the third journey, he had this huge collection, the four province collection that he had collected from the churches in Galatia and in Macedonia and Greece and in Rome. So he proved he was eager to help those Jerusalem poor. And, of course, this shows the comedy between the Gentiles and the Jews in the early church. They were working with each other. They are, their agreement in doctrine, salvation by grace alone, not through works. They agreed in taking care of the Jerusalem church, even though they were mainly Jerusalem, Jews and not Gentiles. So the Gentiles were going to help out with the Jews. Why would the church in Jerusalem, why did they need two poor relief offerings? They were a special problem, economic problem. Jai Gill mentions, for one thing, they had frequent national calamities. I don't know what he means by that. I'm trying to think of what they might be, but there were famines, uh, uh, you know, like the one at the time of Claudius, early 50s. And also the Jerusalem church were constantly being persecuted by the, the rabbis. As Jesus said, they're going to take you from the synagogue to synagogue. What is that? Matthew 22, I think he said that. They're going to 
run you down, and they're going to, some of you they're going to kill. So they were constantly being persecuted. They had famines. They needed money. Of course, Paul had already brought an offering to the poor and to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 11, assuming that he's now in Acts 15 Jerusalem Council. If this is the Jerusalem, if this is the first poor relief meeting, then the Jerusalem elders are asking him to remember the poor again because he's already brought one offering and wants to bring another offering. And, you know, when we see how concerned Paul was about that poor relief offering, that shows us how concerned he was about keeping the Jews and Gentiles together in the early church. That was the number one I hate to put it this way, but that's the number one political problem that Paul had was the Jews and the Gentiles. So when Paul says in verse 10, they, Peter, James, and John, only asked us to remember the poor, he's referring to the fact they did not ask us to preach salvation by works, by keeping the works of the law. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now finished with Galatians 2, 1 through 10. I hope you enjoy this audio. In our next audio, we're going to discuss, we're going to start in verse 11, and we're going to see that unfortunate incident when Peter caved into the Judaizers, and Paul had to stand up to his face and rebuke Peter. This is the Pope, the first Pope. Peter, Paul stands up to him. It shows how independent he was from the authority of the Jerusalem church, which, of course, is one of his major themes. We'll look at that, and then Paul will get into the doctrinal statement of justification by faith, which, of course, is extremely central to the gospel of the church. So I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 